Lord, we thank you that uh, you are uh, in control. And as we look at a world that uh, continues to swirl and uh, all of those things that uh, we can be uh, at peace at the fact that uh, you you have a plan, you're going to settle things uh, sooner or later, and that uh, it's going to be taken care of, and it's not uh, in our hands to get everything accomplished. It's uh, in your hands, and so we can trust you as a good God and uh, then rejoice that uh, we'll be free uh, ultimately from all the chaos that's here and enjoying your presence uh, in a world that was created uh, for us to enjoy uh, as it should be. So Lord, we thank you uh, that this is uh, our last parable. We enjoyed going through these, but uh, may it be helpful in our understanding. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 25, we're uh, at this uh, last uh, parable that uh, is in the Olivet Discourse at this point when Jesus gets done. Uh, You've got a day or two, and uh, he is um, dealing with some last-minute things, uh, and then he's crucified. So um, this is in the the Passion Week, and after that, Jesus isn't telling parables because he's spending most of his time, you know, you, you think about this, why would he teach in parables afterwards because he's only appearing to his followers he's not trying to hide the message at that point parables for the jesus admitted this in matthew 13 was designed to to hide some of the messages from people that didn't really care to know uh didn't want to know um and uh, so there's no reason for him to speak in parables after the uh resurrection because he's speaking directly to his followers until he uh, sends up to heaven I want us to start off by just simply reading through this passage, and uh, we'll start off in verse number 31, and uh, you're going to get a lot of repeated statements, uh, but uh, that is just for effect uh, in the story as you read through it. So verse 31, chapter 25, it says this, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them that are on his right hand, Come ye, my blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungry, and hungered, and fed thee, and thirsty, and, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? The king shall answer, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, 
When we saw thee in hunger, or thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee, then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. What we have here is uh, initially starting off a reference to the coming of the Son of Man. When you see the statement, the Son of Man, remember this is uh, the title that Jesus used for himself often. Uh, he did not come to earth and, and say what we would expect him to say because he was born, and so people would assume, okay, a human being, he's born. And you would expect him to be going around and saying, I am the Son of God. The Son of God is doing this and these type of things. You would expect him to use that title to emphasize the fact that he was not just merely a man, he was God. Now, you get to the book of John, and that is the emphasis. I mean, you read uh, the end of John, and John, or the second to last chapter of John, and it says, These things are written that you might believe that Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is God. And that final statement of Thomas where he is falling to his feet and he says, my Lord and my God. And you get it, okay? That's what John's trying to emphasize for people uh, that would never have met Christ. He's writing some 40 years after the, the, the time of Christ's ministry. And so he's explaining, this man was not merely man, this was God. And he emphasizes that fact. But when Jesus is talking about himself, he more often than not uses the idea of son of man. And son of man doesn't mean that he's going around and going, look, look, I'm I'm flesh and blood, you know, I I bleed just like you, and all of these things. He's not saying that. This title, and you have this, that he uh, was his favorite title throughout his ministry, it did not merely emphasize that Jesus, who was God, became man. It had significant prophetic overtones about his relation to the kingdoms and nations of the world. In Daniel's prophecies about all the kingdoms of the world, one comes before the throne of God that has the right to rule all the kingdoms of mankind. To this son of man, authority is given over all the nations uh, and people and nations. Glory and a kingdom are given to him. I just want you to to, to place something here and go back to Daniel chapter 7 because I want you to see this passage. This is a passage that initially, as you read through it, Daniel is having a vision of uh, all sorts of different kinds of beasts. And what he's seeing laid out for him in Daniel chapter 7 is uh, the kingdoms of the world in his present times and the ones yet future. The Lord's giving him an understanding of what's going to happen in, in human history. In Daniel 7, you have first, uh, you have these four great beasts that come up out of the sea of, and we'd say the sea of humanity. Verse 4, the first one was like a lion, had eagle's wings. You go, what's that representing? It's the kingdom that uh, he is presently part of, the kingdom of Babylon. This royal, regal uh, kingdom that uh, was impressive in all of its ways. And in a previous uh, vision, it was the head of gold on the statue that Daniel sees. Second, verse 5, behold, another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in the mouth between the teeth of it. And you go, what's that? That's known as the Medo-Persian Empire, oftentimes just referred to as the Persian Empire in history. And you go, why is it raised on one side over the other? Because one part of the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, was stronger than the other part. 
and they took three kingdoms, uh, and you can go through history, they destroyed three different kingdoms in their conquering of uh, the known world at the time. Uh, that's why they have three bones in the mouth. Uh, you get to the next one in verse 6, and you have this uh, leopard that has uh, four wings of a fowl in the back. It's got four wings, and you go, why does a leopard need wings? Because it's really, really, really fast. Okay? And you go, what's this representing? Well, it's the kingdom of Greece. Remember, the, the conquering of Alexander the Great, he starts off in, in uh, Macedonia, conquers Greece, and then conquers the known world at the time, and by the age of 33, he's crying in his, uh, his alcohol and crying that he has no more worlds to conquer, and he dies because he's conquered the known world, fast, uh, swift uh, that it was. You have a fourth beast, and it's uh, one that is, uh, verse 7, Behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, strong exceedingly, had great iron teeth, that devoured and break in pieces, stamped the residue with its feast, feet. It was diverse in, uh, from all the other beasts that were before it. It had ten horns, and this little horn, and you look at the little horn, the little horn is going to represent the Antichrist who boasts great things and the like. And you go, what's that? That's the Roman Empire. And uh, we're going to have in the uh, seven-year time period a revived Roman Empire, uh, something in there. And you think about how Europe today, when they try and unify themselves, they, well, the only thing they can get unified on is the fact that they were all part of the Roman Empire at one time, for the most part. And so you look at their currency in the uh, European Union, and you see that their currency has all sorts of stuff from the Roman Empire, aqueducts, those type of things, because that's the only thing they can go is a combined heritage for them. Um, but what you have is those four kingdoms. But then you have a scene that reads this way in verse number nine. Daniel sees this. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and hair on his head like pure wool, and his throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire, and a fiery stream issued and came forth before him. Thousands and thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened, and you go, who's this referring to? Well, you read it through, and you go, well, it sounds like this could be a statement of who Jesus is, but it's referring to God the Father. You go, why? Because in verse number 13, here's what you see right after this when Daniel sees this. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed and here's what it's saying is that here this one the son of man is going to rule over the kingdoms of the nations He's going to do this. And, and so when Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 is talking about the Son of Man, He's going to come in glory. This is, I mean, anybody that read the, the Old Testament would have gone, oh, okay, we're, we're talking about the one who's going to rule over the nations. Now, what is it going to be like when the Son of Man comes in all of His glory? Because it says here in verse uh, 31 that He comes in His glory and sits upon a throne. You say, well, what does this look like? Well, uh, what does the Son of Man in His glory look like? Well, three of the disciples experienced this glory for a few moments at the transfiguration. you got the passage there to look at. We don't have to turn there. 
all of the descriptions of the, trans, of the transfiguration are is that it is incredible what's there because it, you find that the garments of Christ are as, uh, as bright as the sun, the, like the flashing of lightning, uh, so white as no cleaner could make it. Uh, and uh, it's brightness in the middle of the darkness, and the, the disciples that were there for the few seconds that they were able to view this uh, fall on their face, and you go, okay, so when the sun comes in his glory, it will be obvious, and the answer is yes. No one's going to question the fact and wonder, hmm, wonder if this is him. I mean, we've already read in the Olivet Discourse, there's going to be people during the tribulation going, oh, Christ is over here. You know, he's in this desert place. Come out and visit him out here. Or he's in this, this place over here. And the Lord says, don't listen to him. Because when the Son of Man comes, it's going to be as the lightning. When the lightning uh, goes off, you can see it from east to west. You can see it light up. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. It will be obvious. No one's going to miss the fact that he shows up. And you go, what's going to happen when he shows up? Well, he's going to show up, and you read the accounts, Zechariah and Daniel. Uh, he's going to show up there on the Mount of Olives. He's going to defeat the armies outside Jerusalem, go up uh, probably the Jordan Valley to the fields of Armageddon, which are in the northern Israel, the plains of Jezreel. He's going to fight a battle there. And then he's going to come back and set up a kingdom. And as you read here, it says uh, in... Uh, as you go through this, well, well, we'll talk about it in a second here, uh, but uh, it's impossible to ignore the glory of the Son of Man when he comes to the second coming to set up his kingdom. You're, you're not going to have people going, hmm, I wonder who's the important one here. They're going to know. So the coming of the Son of Man, he's going to come, he's going to rule on a throne, he's going to rule over the nations, he's going to do this. Now, Part of this calls for him to uh, figure out who's going to be a part of this kingdom. Who gets to be a part of this? And and what you have is the judgment of the nations uh, that take place. Now, this is the judgment. You you got that chart last week. This is the judgment. There's multiple judgments throughout the Scripture. I mean, you you got that. But uh, this is the one that's between the tribulation and the kingdom. When the Lord comes back, there's uh, about a 75-day uh, time span that Daniel 12 tells us about. Uh, there's a 75-day time period where, okay, the nations are defeated. The Lord comes back. The temple has to be rebuilt. Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 talks about a new temple being built. There's actually going to be a river that flows from the city of Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is actually going to be alive. You'll no longer be able to call it the Dead Sea realize why it's called the Dead Sea? Uh, a, it doesn't have any way to get water out, so it just kind of goes there to die. There is nothing living in the Dead Sea. Uh, but in that time, you're going to have a river that flows out of Jerusalem, uh, and it's going to feed that, and people are going to fish there. It's going to be a great place to go fishing. Um, and you've got this temple that's got to be built, and you have to have this judgment of nations to see who actually gets to be a part of the kingdom. That's why you have to have 75 days, because you've got to get the nations gathered from all over the globe. Say, how's that going to work out? I don't know. But they're going to be able to get there. 
And the Lord's going to call them there, and what you have is this, is that before uh, this sets up, the judgment takes place, all the nations are brought before the Son of Men are set up for judgment. The ones on the right are the sheep, and the ones on their left are the goats. Okay, it's just picturing something that an agricultural society would understand. Now, we don't deal with sheep and goats, sheep and goats, not sheeps. <sighs> There's only one person here that I know has sheep. Well, someone else has got it hiding in their garage. Um, but uh, we, we don't deal with this. But understanding the, this whole thing about sheep and goats is this, that um, oftentimes in the Middle East, you would have the sheep and the goats, they take them out together. The sheep uh, were there for their white coats uh, of wool that would be there. Uh, the goats uh, typically were black, and you would get them for the black wool that they would have. Um, and they would go out and, and pasture together. But when they came back, the shepherd would divide them out when they came to the sheepfold. He would move the, the goats to one pen and the sheep to another pen and separate them out uh, at night. This is why in the story of uh, when the Lord says, I am the good shepherd, the very same chapter in John 10, he says, I am the door, because that's what the shepherd became when the sheep were coming in. He was the door. He would let them go one way or the other, uh, and that, and that's why he's the door. Uh, and uh, so he would, he would uh, you know, talking about this, this was very familiar to the culture that you would have a dividing out of the sheep and goats. You wouldn't have them together uh, overnight. And what you have is that on the right hand is a place of blessing. Okay, that's, that's the blank there. It's a place of blessing. The left hand is a place of evil things. This is, this is how the culture works over there um, in the Middle East, uh, and it still does today. Uh, the right hand is the, the arm of strength and blessing. In fact, we, we've just went through a story a couple weeks ago in our study in Genesis on Sunday morning where you had a young man who's named Benjamin. Yamin is right hand. Benjamin, son of my right hand. And uh, you say, why was he named son of uh, the right hand? Because this is the son that's going to get all the good things. He's the last son, you know, he's going to be babied, you know, <laughs> think of it that way. Uh, he's going to get all the blessings of being the last child, last in line, and he gets all the things that the older children grump about that they never had. Um, and, and so he's, he's going to be called Benjamin. The left hand is where the hand you do all the dirty stuff with. And you don't you know, you, you, in that culture, if you wave with your left hand, it's like uh, an obscene gesture. You wave with your right hand. Waving the left hand is not a thing you do. You go, why? Because this is the, the hand that's the, not the good hand. It does all the stuff you don't want to do uh, with a good hand. Um, to be on the left hand is not necessarily a place of blessing. It's a place of uh, cursing and uh, that. And so this is, this is how they think. And so you have those sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left hand. And it's representing the people and the nations that are there. Uh, you have those that are going to be blessed and those that aren't going to be blessed uh, through all of this. So he's going to divide them out. So let's just talk on uh, the next page uh, there, the sheep on the right hand. As you read the account, it shifts from being called son of man to the king. Okay, so the son of man and the king are equal here. If you hadn't caught that yet. 
and he speaks to the individuals on the right hand. He declares to them that they get to enter the kingdom that has been waiting since the beginning of creation. I mean, that's what it says there in verse number uh, 30, uh, 34. It says this, that you inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You go, well, wait a second. Why was this set up from the foundation of the world? Well, let's go back and think about the, the whole history of the Bible. Just understand the whole plan of what God intended for mankind. God put mankind here on the earth and gave them several responsibilities and one command. The one command is don't eat of that tree. But the responsibility was this. You need to have dominion over the earth, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the face of the earth. Go across the earth and live across the earth and and you have dominion over it, you have rule over it. And mankind was supposed to rule over the earth. And you go, how long did that last? Till Adam and Eve ate of the fruit they weren't supposed to and creation from that point has not done what man's wanted. There are times we can get animals to do what we want them to do, want them to do, but they go and do their own thing. Sometimes they eat people, uh, you know. So you, you go, and that's not going well. And then you just think about how mankind works with mankind. They can't get along, even if you're the same political party. You can't really agree on who you're going to vote on. You know, we've seen that this last week. You know, they, they can't get along. There's chaos, and there's no real the things seem to be going on that uh, are peaceful and calm, that there, it seems to be anybody that's really in charge. It's just kind of chaos everywhere as you look across the earth. You've got to have an occasion where somebody actually rules and accomplishes this, that you have the earth being ruled by someone who's having dominion over the earth, and that during his reign, there's lots of people being born, being fruitful and multiply. I mean, this is something that has been the theme of the Scripture. Mankind fails. The first Adam fails. This is why Jesus is called the second Adam, because he's going to be the one who actually fulfills what Adam doesn't accomplish. He rules over the earth. He rules over the nations. He gets the the world to be what it's supposed to be. And so this kingdom has been the plan of God from the beginning of time that mankind lives here on earth and it is a place that is being well run. Now the reason that you have in your notes there, first paragraph, the reason that they get to inherit this kingdom is that they took care of the Lord when he was in need. Okay, they took care of him. That's what he says, you took care of me. And the statements are very personal here. I was, uh, and I was this way, and I was this way, and you did this, and the Lord's referring to himself. Now, the response of the people is that they never got to see the Lord. I mean, think about this. We're 2,000 years removed from Jesus being on earth. You know, they, they haven't seen Jesus and so they're being told, you get to inherit this because you took care of me personally. And so they respond, how could they have done this, uh, this help? And Jesus responds that the nations, when they took care of his family, took care of him. I mean, this is something to, to recognize that when you get saved, you become a part of the family of God. John 1.12, uh, for those that believe on Jesus, they have the right 
to become the sons of God. They're part of God's family. Uh, We're told throughout the scripture that we're brothers and sisters of Christ. It's not that we're like Christ, that we have all the internal infinite capabilities of him, but we're part of the family. And so when you read through the scripture, you find this, uh, that, that when a person becomes a follower of God and has faith in Jesus Christ, they become a part of his family. In fact, we might, and I'll put it this way, who are Jesus's family? I mean, the blank is this, those that are followers of him. And, and, it, and there's a story that, that emphasizes this, and I, I love this story because it, it, it then makes us not feel like we're alone when bad things go wrong, when people do stuff to you. Um, it's the story of the Apostle Paul, who at the time was not the Apostle. He was named Saul. He was on his way to Damascus to haul off a bunch of people, to throw them in jail, and hopefully that they would die. And, and uh, that was kind of his hope because they were followers of Christ. And uh, he had gotten papers, and so he's on his way to Damascus. And when he's outside the city, all of a sudden the sun, uh, or it's, it's midday, and it's not the sun that blinds him. Uh, it's this bright shining uh, thing from heaven, this individual that is there. And the statement is made as Saul falls on the ground, and it's this statement, Saul, Saul, why persecutest my followers? No, no, that's not what the story says. No, it says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? See, what when the followers of Christ are affected and persecuted, um, the Lord takes it personally. It's a personal offense to him. But I was telling the, 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 the group this morning, this, this plays along with the fact of when you read through the New Testament, it describes us as being in Christ. When you're saved, you're in Christ, you're in Jesus. And you know, if you do, you, know, you can have a lengthy study just going through the New Testament and marking through all the times where it says a person's in Christ, in Jesus. There is a union with Christ where you are, you, know, you are in union with him. I mean, even baptism is a picture of this, where we have baptism when it takes place. A person says, I believe in Jesus Christ, and you have this baptism going in the water that you believe that Jesus Christ was died, buried, and rose again. And you go, what's that picturing? That I'm in Christ that on the cross, I died to sin because I'm in Christ. Uh, that I'm alive today because I'm in Christ. There's a unity or the, the union with Christ is a the theological idea that when his followers, his family are persecuted, it's as if an individual is persecuting him. So when Jesus says here, uh, you took care of me, you then go, well, wait a second, who is he referring to? Especially when we're dealing with people coming out of the tribulation. Okay, remember the context, okay? We're dealing with people who are at the, tri- at the end of the tribulation, these nations that are there. And what you have in the immediate context of this judgment, Jesus' brothers can be two groups. Okay, you say, what two groups? Okay, the first group might be those that are part of the nation of Israel who believed during the tribulation. Jews who believe on Jesus Christ that are part of the nation of Israel, and he says, these ones here. I mean, he's got all the nations gathered there. 
but he's got a group of Jewish believers that are there who have made it through the tribulation. He's going, these my brethren, okay, ones that were followers of me that put faith in their Messiah. Um, It could be referencing that, or it could be referencing this. It could be referencing a second group, more specifically the 144,000 Jewish witnesses Okay, that's the blank, that's their witnesses who will suffer greatly during the tribulation for their testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have the passages there in Revelation that talk about these individuals. You have 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel that are going to go out and give testimony to Jesus Christ. That people need to accept Jesus Christ and they're going to proclaim this message. And that's not going to make people happy, especially one who is uh, claiming to be Christ himself the antichrist this leader who rises up and demands that people worship him he's not going to be for this so what do you think he's going to do he's going to persecute people like this he's going to chase after him well if people believe the message that they're preaching you think they're going to take him in and go hey we'll take care of you i mean they're I mean, think, think about what happens in the middle of tribulation. We talked about this. When the abomination of desolation shows up, and we, we looked at this parable a couple weeks ago, Jesus tells individuals, when you see that thing set up, don't go back to your house if you're in the field. Well, I'm going to need a coat and supplies. Don't go back there. If you're on the roof of your house, which you had, uh, it was like your porch back then, they had flat roofs in in that culture, um, and you had stairs outside of, uh, that would go outside of the house, and he says this, when you go and leave the roof, don't go into your house to get stuff. Leave, run. So just think about this. There's going to be a whole bunch of people that are fleeing the persecution of Antichrist that aren't going to have food, drink, clothing, And there's going to be people that take them in. Now, I want to make sure that we understand this is not saying this is a works salvation. Okay, If you do these things and you do these works, you'll be saved. No, what these people are doing is they're taking in these individuals because they believe the same thing. They're all part of the same family. They believe the good news that is being preached um, those that take the, the second to last sentence in that, that paragraph, those that take care of them during the tribulation will be ones who show their acceptance of the message. Their faith is displayed by works. Now, we, we got into a, a discussion this morning. Someone asked a question after we got all done with this, and they said, isn't this kind of similar to what happened in World War II? You have a whole group of people that the Jewish nation um, calls the righteous. You go, who are the righteous? The righteous are Gentiles, people who weren't Jews, that housed individuals during uh, the occupa- Nazi occupation of Europe that housed Jews and got them uh, sa- to safety at risk of their own lives. And someone asked me, they said, okay, so they rescued the, 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 the people of Israel. Are they saved? Because they've done this. And the answer is no. You go, well, that's kind of blunt. 
Okay, that, what, they were, what, what they were doing was they were rescuing people because they had opposition to the fact uh, in their own soul to people being murdered just for being a, a certain race of people, not because they believed a message, not that they believed a God. Some of these people were godless. I got to ask this. I mean, there's a film years ago, never seen it, um, but uh, it's a true story, a man by the name of uh, Oscar Schindler. Schindler's List, a man who uh, employed a whole bunch of Jews in his factory. And somebody said, hey, he did that. Is he saved? As far as I know, probably not, because if you looked at his life, he was a womanizer and drank, he was a drunk uh, part of the time. Uh, not a man that's, you know, a Bible-believing, uh, God-fearing individual. That doesn't save him. Okay? Um, you did have people that were Christians that did this. We have an example, great book. If you ever can get a hold of it, and you can watch videos of her uh, giving her, her speeches and, and talks. A uh, lady by the name of Corey Tinboom, who uh, wrote the story, The Hiding Place. She was a Christian living in Holland with her family. And they took in Jews, and eventually, because they were doing that, they ended up being in, uh, sent off to concentration camps. So Corey's sister died in a concentration camp uh, because they were willing to rescue Jews, give them housing and protection. Uh, but Corey saved, why? Because she had a faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. What we're talking about here at the end, you know, this tribulation time, is that they're housing these people and taking them in because these are fellow believers. These are people proclaiming the message they believe. They're accepting that message, and that's why they're taking them in and giving them care. Um, it's not because they're doing good works and God goes, okay, you did good works, we're letting you in. Okay, that, that's not what's being suggested here because it goes against everything else the Scripture even talks about. So that's, that's what you have here. Here are you as individuals. You took care of these individuals. You get to go right into the kingdom and understand what that means. Here you have individuals. I mean, just imagine this, okay? I'm an unsaved man living right now. I'm born in 1972. You go do the math, 51 years, okay? That's how old I am, okay? So we'll just, just stop that right there, okay? But just imagine this. I'm an unsaved man, and the tribulation starts, and I get saved. And I make it through the whole of tribulation. You know, if it was to start right now, I would be 58 years old. And what would happen is this, is that I would physically go into that kingdom with my body that I have right now, and I would be able to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and be able to enjoy that. Whereas... You know, me, right now, I know the Lord, tribulation starts, I'm out of here, I get a new resurrection body. Um, am I going to be a part of that kingdom? Uh, okay, I'll be here to, to help out, but I'm not having children. I'm not really enjoying what, you know, this, because I've, I've got a different perspective on things and whatever. But here you've got these individuals that just go right into the, the, this, the, this kingdom and are able to live in a perfect environment. Life as it should have been a world as it should have been. No wars, none of these things. Animals are actually obeying and being kind. Uh, crops growing like they should. Um, all of these things. They get to go right into this and enjoy this. And this goes on for a thousand years. Okay, so that, that's what's happening here. You're part of the nations, and, and 
when the Lord comes back at Armageddon, understand not every nation's going to be there fighting. I mean, Revelation tells us there's an army that comes from uh, the Far East that numbers 200 million to come and invade the land of Israel along with the Antichrist who's already there and his armies and whatever. Um, you have an army of 200 million. Okay, let's just think about the population of China. China's got a population of one point something billion. There are going to be some people in China that aren't in the land of Israel when that battle takes place. They aren't killed at that battle because they're fighting against God. God's going to have to call them in from all of the world. And so you're going to have people from nations from all over the globe, people that are there that are going to be a part of this, and if they're the individuals that accepted the message of Jesus Christ, they were the ones that, if they'd been given opportunity, protect individuals like this, take care of fellow believers, um, indicating the fact that, you know, by their faith they show works that display a faith in Jesus Christ, um, they go right into the kingdom. And so you're going to have uh, people groups uh, that are of certain nations that are going to go into that kingdom and, uh, you know, you say, like what countries? Egypt? We're told that Egypt's a part of the kingdom. That's not to say all the Egyptians are saved because some of them are going to be in the goat category, but you're going to have a lot of people from Egypt. You're going to have people from Assyria. You go, what's that region? Iraq. They're going to be part of that kingdom, that nation group. Um, going directly into that kingdom. Um, So you you read through this, okay? The sheep on the right hand aren't saved as the result of their works. They're identifying that they have a faith in the message that these people are proclaiming and taking them in, taking care of them. Now that leaves us with the goats on the left hand. The individuals on the left hand will be condemned to suffer eternal punishment in a place of eternal fire originally designed for the fallen angels. Okay, you read this in verse number 41. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, Hell was not originally designed for humanity. It was designed for the fallen angels. And you go, who are the fallen angels? The demons and Satan himself? Satan is a fallen angel. He was an angel that followed after God, but somewhere along the line he rebelled. And people go, when did that happen? I don't know. We're not told uh, when the angels were created. They are created, but when we're not told. Uh, You read the book of Job, and it talks about uh, the angels being there. I was just read through Job today. Um, And we get to, I think it's chapter 37, 36, I can't remember exactly, but uh, it talks about this, that the angels are there singing when the Lord created the universe, singing praise to Him. So somewhere in the time, you have angels falling, rebelling against God. God says, okay, well, fine, you are eventually going to be consigned to a place of fire, and it's after that that Satan shows up and starts tempting Eve and Adam. But the Lord prepared that, but now you have to have some place for people who rebel against God. Where are they going to go? Well, it's this place of fire that's eternal. Now, what you have is this. They will be condemned because they did not care for the Lord when they had a chance. 
they will claim that they never had a chance to help Jesus personally. Okay, that's the blank that's there. Well, we didn't get a chance. You know, if you'd been here, maybe we would have, uh, but we didn't get a chance, and what they're missing is the point. He will tell them that they failed to take care of his family when they were in need. Now, think about the time of the tribulation, seven years, where you've got official proclamation that anybody who doesn't worship the beast will die. Now, that's the command of the Antichrist. Uh, Imagine just being your average person, unsaved individual, and you have somebody who comes through and he's preaching the gospel and whatever else, and you're going, "Uh, no, no thanks, you're not stopping here. I don't want to die because of your belief system. Get out of here. I don't, I don't want to be caught up in, in your in craziness, weirdness, and whatever, and be charged with housing a criminal. No, go away. I mean, that, that's the type of thing that will be going on in the, the tribulation is, you know, I don't want to die. I want to preserve my life. No, you, you know, and they're thinking in very earthly terms, the here and now, whatever, and they haven't accepted Christ, and they are just going, go on your way. We're not going to take care of you. We're not even going to house you, not give you any food. Uh, Please uh, go someplace else. We don't want to house you. That's what's going to be going on. Now, that final paragraph on the bottom of that page says this. These individuals had not committed any direct act against Jesus. I mean, you go, well, these got to be horrible people, wretched, rotten, And there are going to be people like that, but their sin was not one of commission, but omission. You go, what does that mean? They aren't doing what they should be doing. You know, there are certain sins that you do that you do, and you're not supposed to be doing it, but you do it anyhow. You know, don't lie. Okay, I'm going to lie. Okay, that's a sin of commission. But there are certain sins that you can do that are ones that you don't do what you're supposed to do, that's a sin of omission. James chapter 2, or uh, was James, I can't remember exactly where it's at, but uh, I think it's 4. Uh, For him that knoweth to do, not, uh, do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. I mean, it says that. And so you can be guilty of sins that you commit, and you can be guilty of things that you don't do that you should do. Well, in this case, the major problem is they don't do what they should have done, and that's believe the Son. They don't obey what the Son says. You need to believe on me. They, they don't want to do that. And so it's a sin of omission. They did not, as the top of the page says, they did not believe the good news, so they did not take care of the messengers of the good news. So this brings us to the final paragraph. In the end, only those who have faith in the good news of Jesus will enter into the earthly kingdom. Now, those of us that had faith earlier on, we'll be a part of that kingdom too. You know, we had faith, we'll enjoy what the Lord's doing here and whatever, and we'll have some responsibilities, we're told, uh, in one of the parables we looked at. Uh, but fact is, is these people just go directly in, they enjoy it because they had works. No, they had faith. They believe the, the messages that Revelation describes, the everlasting gospel, the good news uh, that uh, will... Uh, take care of individuals for eternity. 
that Jesus does save. And so um, that's how it ends. And so it's just basically stating the fact uh, here for individuals to remind them uh, that they have a responsibility to respond to the good news and act like they are believers in the good news. And uh, that is the most important thing, and that's what the Lord ends with, uh, that if you don't, you're not just merely missing out on good times here on earth, you're going to be separated from God in a place of fire. So that's, that's the reality of it. Any questions? I answered a few of them already that we had from this morning. So you, you guys uh, and gals usually get uh, me answering a couple of the questions that I get at the end, and I throw that in as we go along because I'm like, okay, that's a question that popped up into somebody's head you know, this morning. But any questions or thoughts here this evening? That might go beyond, or you're just thinking through this. Yes? You were starting to say something about 75 days after mm-hmm. Jesus. I didn't catch that all. If you go to Daniel chapter 12, um, you have some time phrases there, or time periods there, that don't add up to seven years. It adds up to seven years and 45 days and then seven years and 75 days. And then it basically says, and then the kingdom will be set up. And so you're, you're just kind of going, okay, so what is, you know, the 45 days and 75 days? And someone suggested it's 45 days to get the nations judged, 75 days to get the temple built. That's where Jesus is going to rule and reign from. That's when the kingdom starts. So that, it's in Daniel 12. So... Daniel chapter 12. Bob? There's a third temple, yeah. Uh, Ezekiel 40 through uh, 48 gives us what we know to be the third temple is this description, but you say, what's the third temple? It's kind of built on the ruins, possibly, of the one that is built during the tribulation. We do have a description of what the, the, the kingdom temple is going to be like in Ezekiel 40 to 48, but we know that there has to be a temple because the Antichrist sits down in the temple, declares himself to be God, sets up a statue, declares everyone's got to worship him. We don't have a temple right now. If they were to build a temple, it would be the third temple. So you're wondering, okay, would the one that's in the millennial kingdom be a reconstruction project? And I I would say probably it's a complete reconstruction. You might be able to call that the fourth temple because the city of Jerusalem sounds like it's going to be a rubble by the time Jesus comes back. The nations are going to have attacked and wiped things out in Jerusalem. Sort of like what... Uh, the question was, uh, is there a third temple? There is a third temple that has to be built. Um, because when the tribulation happens, there's events that take place in the temple. We don't have a temple built right now. But there has to be one sooner or later. Um, and then Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 talks about a temple that Jesus will rule in, rule from, and um, quite a massive massive project just reading it um and uh, the like um but they're they're you know that would be third slash fourth temple yeah bob 
Built by Solomon. First temple was built by Solomon. You had uh, that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. You had the second temple, which is um, one that was started by. Um, no, it was started with uh, when the children came back in Ezra's time, and they rebuilt the temple under. You read the stories of uh, under Joshua, not Joshua of the book of Joshua. Uh, Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel, they rebuild the temple. And then what Herod does is builds on that temple and makes it really, really fancy, and that's called the second temple. And then we got the third temple coming. But that temple is still around, right? No. What what happened to that temple? That one was wiped out by Titus in um, 67... 66. Who was Titus? What, what army is he running? He was Romans. The Romans came through. So what's, what's over there in Israel right now is the remains of the second temple. Um, the, the, the brickwork, the, well, basically the platform that's there is all we have left of that. You can go outside the temple area and they have rocks that they shoved off, you know, and the, the like. Um, as Titus's troops back in 67 A.D. Um, burned the temple down, the gold rolled off, and so in order to get the gold cre- creeping in between all the cracks and all the brickwork, take it apart brick by brick and um, the like. Um, so there is no, no temple there, um, none. Um, it's the platform that's there is where El-Aqsa Mosque sits on the southern end and then the dome on the rock sits where probably the temple was at. So, so, uh, well, the western wall. So, so, hmm. so, so uh, uh, we're going to put that back on where it was, on that temple mount. Uh, I think there's a little politics going on over there. And so, I, yeah, I, do, I, do, I don't know if they're going to put it on the spot where the dome on the rock's at. It may be that they are allowed to at least have a temple on that complex and they don't build on a dome rock. It may be the deal is why they're able to build a temple is they, the Arab nations go, all right, we're okay with you building a temple there if it brings peace to the region. Okay, you can build right next to ours. And so, so did, did I hear you say this in a sermon or was I listening to a radio preacher saying somebody's going to be up a pretty, a pretty good negotiator to get through those two Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of why people think that maybe this is the deal that the Antichrist kind of works out, is that he brings peace to the Middle East. Can you imagine bringing peace right now to the Middle East? That'd be really impressive. I mean, if you're a politician that could do that right now, yeah, you, 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 I mean, you know, solve all sorts of things. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll start giving you messianic terms, and that's what people will do for an individual like this. That, you know, they're like Christ. They can solve anything. <laughs> 